0: Welcome back into Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the people's podcast, the players podcast, the uh, podcast for the team, the Orange and Black, the Philadelphia Flyers, a team that up until about two days ago was in absolute disarray. I'm Russ Joy. You can find me on Twitter at Joy on Broad, and I'm joined as always by CrossingBroad.com's Flyers beat writer, Anthony Sanfilippo, who you can find on Twitter at AntSanPhilly. Anthony, uh, like I said, two games, two positive results here on the road, but... I think it's important to probably set some context about just how important this road trip is. Of course, we're going to talk about some of the things that we've done differently, um, you know, changing the game, I guess, uh, for Flyers coverage from Press Row that I'd like to uh, to hit on real quick. And um, let's let's get started, I guess. Let's kind of set the, the context for what this road trip, this four-game road trip uh, that started against Anaheim and continued to L.A. and is going to... Uh, you know, obviously go on to uh, San Jose and Arizona, let's just kind of set the stage. We talked on the last episode about a little conversation that was had in the bowels of Wells Fargo Center between Ron Hextall and Bobby Clark. And uh, I I think you could probably give the people a little bit of an idea and connecting some of the dots and stuff that you reported that you went on 97.5 in the immediate aftermath of the last home game against uh, the Islanders. Let's just kind of set the stage for how important this road trip is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this road trip is um, is very important. And I think that there's been a lot of internal discussion about where the Flyers were um, heading into this road trip after that 6-1 loss. Actually, I think it was even before the 6-1 loss to the Islanders. I think that there was some concern. And then that, um, so the Bobby Clark uh, meeting with Hextall actually occurred uh, the Tuesday before, which was the um, Colorado game if I'm not mistaken. yep. Um, and so Bob Clark uh, actually spent the entire game in the GM's box with um, with Hextall and that's that's not unusual whenever Bob's in town, he still sits up there. So it's not unusual to have Bob there with Ron. but the, they were very in, you know in detailed conversation for much of the game. Um, which ended up being a Flyers' loss, and then afterward, uh, we saw them down, like you had mentioned, in the bowels of the Wells Fargo Center, and uh, they were talking. And as they were, le- as Bob was leaving, uh, walking out to where his car is, was, he did say to Hexy, "You'll see him in a couple weeks," which, again, is is not much of anything in and of itself. And then you go to Saturday, and uh, Saturday you have Dave Scott who's the CEO for Comcast, um, and you have him at the uh, at the game in the GM's box, that's not something that's regular. That's not something that you see pretty frequently. Um, and th- there has been a lot of talk that, that Dave Scott is not really a, a hands-on kind of CEO. Um, and th- the fact that he's there tells you that they're probably seeing some things that uh, are have them a little concerned. and my guess is it's something bottom line related um, at which point then he's in there talking to Hextall. So then if you then I you know talked to some you know a couple of people who do the whispering around the franchise and um, they had said that you know things have been pretty uh, yeah, pretty tense uh, of late that week um, with the team. And there was a real sense that they had this trip to figure it out. And that if they came back from this trip and things weren't better, then there could be changes made. Now, what those changes would be, we don't know. There was a little bit of speculation that it could be the coach. There's some speculation it could be the coach and the general manager. There was speculation that it could be a big trade. Uh, What that specifically would be is hard to to determine um, at this point. But it was certainly something that has been... Finally, for the first time, I think, in Hextall's tenure as general manager, finally there is some doubt creeping into the mind that there's something here is not working. Um, so there, those discussions are, you know, were kind of taking place. And then, of course, they get their, their asses handed to them by a bad Islanders team. Um, the fans are chanting, you know, fire Hextall. Um, the seat there's a lot of empty seats now those seats are sold most of those seats are sold but the problem is is what you're having here is you're having people either who have the seats and just don't feel like coming because the flyers aren't interesting or you have um, companies who own those seats and can't give them away to their uh, employees or clients or you have ticket brokers who have bought the seats in bulk and can't sell them on the secondary market. So any, but anyway, you slice it, seeing the empty seats, even if those tickets are sold, um, is it, got to be concerning for the team because it's it's there's not a lot of revenue that's being made by those people because they're not coming in, they're not paying the park, they're not coming in and buying concessions or going to the store and buying jerseys or t-shirts or hats or whatever. So there's a lot of things that 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 concerns you, and so when you see those. Empty seats, and Rush, you're down there with me. You see how many there are. Um, 20%, I think that's
0: probably, 20% yeah, is, I, I, is probably I, a nice
1: number. Yeah, that's probably, you know, it's somewhere probably between 10 and 20%. Um, it's, it's very likely that that's what's causing the uh, uh, the concern here. And um, so I think that that's kind of why we, we came into this four game road trip out, out west, and that the idea is. They have to fix it or else. And I don't necessarily know if two wins, albeit two good wins, they played well in these two games against uh, Anaheim and LA, um, are enough. Like if they get their, if they get smacked around by San Jose again on Saturday night, and if they lose the game in Arizona on Monday, um, I, I wonder if that's you know going two and two on this trip is enough um, to you know
0: keep this you know to stay with the status quo um it's part of the struggle for this team i i think it's pretty safe to say like the the biggest issue is if you're anti-hack stall, the the two wins are great right like it's nice to see a good result uh and and i say "see" in in quotes because i i don't really know how many fans want to stay up to watch what has been a mediocre at best flyers club you know play at 10 o'clock at night do you really want to stay up until past midnight to to catch these games I'm not so sure I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the fan base isn't up Uh, obviously kids are not going to be up until midnight and working adults like I I think for the most part probably are going to catch the highlights by the way I did find there is a uh, a site that if you don't like to you know have the score spoiled for you if you just google spoiler free NHL highlights it'll uh, lead you to the video and and you can actually watch it it's like an eight minute highlight reel of every game and it's actually kind of nice so I've done that I uh, had to do it last night I didn't get to stay up and watch the game but um I digress there's there's this strange thing that I, I think is kind of going on with the with flyers fans right now we're like obviously you want to see the team get results they get two wins uh la not not the worst team in the world right Anaheim not a total mess. Um in terms of goals per game they are I think they're third worst in the league at like 2.36 goals for uh per game. But it's still hard to go out on the West Coast and pick up two wins, which is great, but if if you're an anti-Dave Hackstall guy, like if if you're somebody who screams from the rooftops that this team would be a cup contender if it weren't for Dave Hackstall holding it back, then like this is not what you want to see. I mean, it, I, I think right? So it, it's this conundrum if if you're anti-Hackstall These results are keeping him in place. And this is a thing that I've gone back and forth with with a a few friends, a few coworkers. It's just what do you want? If the if the team had gone 0-4, I think it's probably safe to say that that Hextall probably, you know, faces the guillotine. Right. And and that I think gets into a more interesting thing of does Hextall actually drop the blade on him or does Hextall put himself on the block right next to him? and say I'm going down with this ship. I don't know. I like I think that actually is one of the more interesting storylines that can come out of whatever happens to Hackstall regardless of how this trip goes. But you want to see your team win. It's nice to see some wins get picked up. It's kind of something like what you would have asked Hackstall after the Islanders game when you said, you know, like last year they went on the road, they got things straightened out and it and it really kind of seemed to reset their season. It looks like like obviously the early results are in. It's been they've been successful on the road Uh, in this in this trip. They've they've generated a ton of pressure Uh, from the slot. And even in the crease in these last two games, they're playing stylistically a lot different. They're getting a lot of shots through in those, you know, high chance and high danger areas. I, It's like, is this is this? all Dave Haxtell changing the game plan is that things are just clicking better for this team. Is it the relief of not having to perform up to what the Philadelphia standard is at home? Is it really just going on the road and bonding as a team? Like, I don't know if we're going to really get these answers right now. I don't know if they'll give us these answers when they come home, but like something has definitely changed. It's not the same team as we saw get shellacked by a woeful Islanders squad.
1: Yeah. Well, let me just, let me say this Um, because I, I like you uh, have a hard time staying awake for ten thirty start times on the West Coast, especially when you know six o'clock comes early in the morning the next day. Um, so what I've been doing is I've been trying to stay up and uh, watch as much as I can, and then kind of you know go back through the DVR and, and uh, on two times speed and try and catch you know the important parts of of what I missed uh, at six o'clock in the morning. Um, so that's kind of been you know the the way i go about it and then rather than offer a game recap or a takeaways from each individual game because now i'm not writing after the game i have the next day has come around right uh i, I instead compl- waited for both games to, to pass and then wrote a uh, very early morning um kind of uh, you know look at the team at where it is at this point and you know, said yeah. These are two good wins. There's no doubt about it. When you're when you have so much self doubt in your in you and you you know as a team and it's a fragile locker room, like it's good to get two wins. It's the first time they won back to back games all season, so that's definitely a positive. However, um, although Anaheim and the Kings are usually formidable opponents, and to some extent they still could be. The Ducks had lost five in a row prior to the game against the Flyers the other night. Um, and uh, so that was that's one thing that was a, a little bit of an issue. Um, for them, they, their defense is pretty, pretty poor. They uh, don't protect the front of the net very well. Um, and I think uh, you wrote a story uh, addressing that. Um, and then the LA Kings should be a much better team than their record shows. That's why their coach, John Stevens, is on the chopping block. Uh, Potential. Oh, Johnny, try, uh, Johnny boy, for them. Um, and so I thought that the the Flyers played a, uh, a decent game against them as well. And yeah, you know, it was a close game until late. Um, Drew got the uh, the late goal to put him up four two, and then Hay gets and get scattered five two. So it looks a lot more you know of a disparate score than it really was. It was a one goal game uh, much of the way. Um, so it, you know. It, those are good wins, but those are flawed teams right now. That's not to say that they're going to remain flawed, but at the time the Flyers got them, they were flawed. Um, so a real good measuring stick is going to be uh, the game against Saturday against uh, San Jose. Because what ends up happening there is, is you're now going to face a really good team, and we'll see if the Flyers have in fact tightened it up so that they're not making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Or were they just fortunate enough to not um, to not have uh, so many, uh, you know, things that go usually go wrong in their games come back against them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think revenge has to be on their mind, right? An 8-2 shellacking in your home opener is certainly going to leave a bad taste in your mouth. Um, I, I, I kind of want to maybe hone in on this a little bit about the, the style change. They. The Flyers when when you look at their heat map, if if you look at the unblocked shots, so I I guess let's let's call it Fenwick. Um, when you look at their their heat maps over the last four games, they like let me let me re I don't know, reset this. So many times I feel like when advanced stats are cited in in articles and in posts, it ends up becoming this this drudging thing where it feels like you need to pop two Advil before you read an article, right? And, and sometimes I think people lean so much on the advanced stats, they're just not doing any of the eye test. Like, you and I have talked about that plenty. There, there is a way to use advanced stats, I think, in a game that ends up being really close or in a loss. You can kind of get a better idea of if a team was just unlucky and they were, you know, they were generating legitimate chances and, and high percentage or, or high danger chances in a game. When you look at the last four games for the Flyers, their, their Corsi 4 and their Fenwick 4 percentage have, have been better. And actually, I, th- I think it was the Anaheim game. They posted the third highest Coursey 4 percentage uh, that, you know, higher than they did in their first seven games. When you look at their heat map of like where they're actually getting these shots that are getting through, they might not go on to net, but like the shots going through, they've been making a, a marked difference, at least in five on five play. We've seen them still taking shots from the point, still taking some shots from within the blue line, but especially against the Kings it wasn't just like a parallel line running with the blue line as had been in previous games. It's it's them actually kind of making their way uh, to like the top of the circle, right? And so they're getting these better chances, but like it looks like if nothing else, if you compare uh, their power play heat maps over the last four games, there has been this marked decision to get closer to the net and rip shots from closer. And and the closer they get into the slot, into these, you know, into the crease and into, you know, high danger zones the better results they've had and you know it's something that we've talked about before I think while we're down at the center but like this is a thing that is just so common in hockey and for some reason it feels like the Flyers have just been so out of the loop on on like where the high danger chances are coming from you look at a team like the Bruins a few games ago the Bruins were taking shots from the point they're taking shots from all over the ice right but their personnel is also, I think, a little bit more skilled at trying to get pucks in from the blue line. This Flyers team, if nothing else, when you have a guy like Wayne Simmons and eventually you get JVR back, these are big bodies to put in front of the net for deflections. These are these are guys uh, the team, I think, has, some, has enough size, has enough speed that they should be able to get in front of the net and get shots. And I think this is maybe more than anything, the fact that they don't have fans yelling at them, shoot, literally every time they get the puck in the offensive zone, and they can actually play their game and get a good shot. I think you're starting to see that, and and we've definitely seen it over the last two games. I think it's the biggest annoyance that I have is listening to Flyers fans at home games, screaming shoot when the guy has a zero angle to get a, a legitimate shot or a scoring chance. You know, you see that kind of thing happen, and the fans are just yelling shoot. It's like going to a youth soccer game, and like everybody's cheering on little Becky to rip a shot, from like the corner flag, she can't kick it farther than 5 yards. But like, darn it, Becky, you shoot that. Shoot the ball on a zero angle. You have no shot. You're probably going to hit side netting. That's what it feels like every time you go to a home game. So I can see why these guys are probably pay, playing a little bit, you know, a little bit more carefree. Uh, I don't know. I, I I it's kind of what I'm chalking this up to, right? Maybe. That's it. Blame the fans, right? What's the easiest thing to do? <laughs> no, like uh, like, really I mean if you're if you're going out there and playing your game and, and playing like you might play in practice and and if these high danger chances are in front of the net you know like, if, if it takes a few extra passes to get a legitimate shot on net it's fine but like you gotta think that at some point it plays into your head when you're playing at home and and literally every time the puck is on your stick fans are just yelling at you to shoot it has to throw you off your game I know you're in the zone but like it's deafening if, if nothing else, when the 70% maybe filled Wells Fargo Center is is just in unison yelling, shoot, it's got to play in your head a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that they might get a little, um, they might be tuning that out at this point. I mean, you do it maybe the first couple times you're out there, you know, you're not used to it. But when you're used to it, I think it's almost just white noise in a lot of ways for them. Um, look, the Flyers have had a lot of, Breakdowns. The, the flyers problem is more that they don't they don't do the things that they're supposed to do and it gets it comes back at them and they've had less of those in these last two games and that's a good thing um, but if we really want to look at it I, you know the, the post that i had um that was scheduled to go up on friday um really kind of looked at and you, I, I take you know you, you had mentioned the analytics and you know i'm not the the biggest analytics guy, but I do appreciate analytics to an extent. I think that there is something that you can glean from them um, if you have a a good sample. And I don't I don't always believe that one game is a good enough sample of what's happening. The team. That's why a lot of times you'll see a team that's you know getting you know murdered in Corsi, but yet somehow finds a way to win the game. Well, that happens because that's hockey. Yep. If you can, can you if you can take what you have over the course of multiple games or seasons or things like that, then you might be able to identify what's going on. And I'll tell you right now that one, the, the one of the biggest problems the Flyers are facing um, with you know, obviously no JVR in the lineup, but Voracek and Simmons are not playing good hockey. And it's weird to say that because Jake Voracek has 13 points in 13 games. And Wayne Simmons leads the team in goals with seven. So, gee, Filippo, how can you sit there and say that this is the case? Here's something I'd like to point out using analytics as an example, okay? Um, Jake has been uh, the analytics darling for the Flyers for, for a long time, right? Primarily because he's a puck, puck driving or a play driving player. He's got the puck on his stick a lot. Um, he creates a lot of offense. When he's on the ice, it's usually spent more time in the offensive zone than in the defensive zone. So he's been really good. I mean, he's been a plus 50% Corsi player, five on five, every season of his career, except the second season of Columbus when he was just under, I think he was like 49.7 or something. He was just under 50%. But every year of his career, predominantly with the Flyers, he's been really good. In 2013-2014, he was a career-best point. One seven. Um, that is a really good number over the course of a full season. Fifty-five percent. That's usually your best players are usually in that echelon In, the, in the, as far as puck um, possession players. Uh, and just in case people don't know what we're talking about here on the podcast, so Corsi is determined a number of shots attempted by your team versus shots attempted by the opposition against you when you're on the ice. So in this in this instance, the flyers have attempted 55 more have attempted shots 55% of the time while Voracek is on the ice, and the opponents have attempted them 45% of the time. While he's on the ice. So that's a 10% difference, that's a pretty good margin. Okay, all right, So that's that's how Corsi works. So that was his best in 2013, 2014. All right? Now he did have one season where he. Um, uh, missed some time because of injury, and then there was one uh, lockout-shortened season in here. So I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, in his career. So I just wanted to look at the last um, six seasons, and including this season, and kind of give you this breakdown. All right. So Voracek, um, in the, when, when it comes to creating his offense, here's the number of shots attempted per game that the Flyers have taken since 2013-14. With Vorchek on the ice. And it's the shots that are being attempted. This is not shots on goal. Okay, because this includes shots that are either blocked or miss the net entirely. Uh, 2013-14, when he was at his best, the uh, Flyers averaged 13.99. Okay. The next season, 14.4. Okay, then it went back to 13.7, 13.9. Last year, 14.1, second best season with the Flyers. This year it's down to thirteen point five four. But even that, even though it's a, it's lower than what it usually is, we're talking, you know, the difference of point four five shots per game that are being attempted when Vor checks on the other. So it's not that big of a disparity, right? Now no, let's it's, look it's at, really yeah. Okay, all right. Just I just want you to go with me on this. And I'm just trying to I'm dragging this out just so that we can uh, so that the, the people listening can understand where the where the problem is. Now, you Fenwick at, next, or what are you
0: going? No, with? no, I'm
1: sticking with I'm sticking with the Corsi. I'm okay. sticking with Voracek. Let's look at the shots taken against the Flyers with Voracek over the ice on the ice on that same span. So, 2013-14, when he was at his best, 11.37 per game shots attempted against the Flyers with Voracek on the ice. And now I want you to take a notice of, of how this number climbs. The following season, 12.49. The next season, 12.55. The next season, 13.42. The next season, 13.78. This year, 14.62. Okay? Yes, 13 games is a small sample size. But the trend from 2013 to 2018 is not a small sample size. And that should be alarming. Okay? He was once a puck-dominant player, and now he's not. This means he's... What's happening? He's losing... More than more fifty-fifty puck battles. He's not as as tough on the wall as he used to be. Uh, not driving the play in the other direction. So although the team is still generating similar shot numbers when he's on the ice, he's really not good defensively. And it's it's gotten so bad that the, the team is now getting giving up an additional four percent of their shots uh, while he's on the ice than they did five years ago, six years ago.
0: That's wild.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a significant. You want to use analytics and you want to look at it and say where is an issue? Where is there an issue? This is an eroding issue with with a specific player. So it doesn't matter when he's and he's look. Jake is as honest as the day is long. When he says, "Don't always look at the score sheet." You know, I might have had three points in the game against the Devils, but for the first thirty-nine minutes, I sucked. Right. That's what he told us. Yep. This is why he's saying that. Because if you really look at it, he's not playing well. Let's look at Wayne Simmons. He's even worse. He's got seven goals, leads the team in scoring. His Corsi 4 so far this season is 43.54. There are 262 forwards in the NHL this season who have skated at least 120 minutes. Okay, so roughly at least 10 minutes per game. So some teams have played 12 games. They say, okay, maybe 10 minutes. Okay, whatever. Of those 262 forwards, Wayne Simmons ranks 228th. Jeez. Okay? 43.54 at 5-on-5. So now here's a guy who's not playing well 5-on-5, who has now been demoted off of the top power play unit. So what, what kind of game is Wayne Simmons giving you? Yeah, he's got seven goals, but outside of those seven goals, what is he doing? He's not doing a lot. Now, he was never a dominant play driver, but his worst season of his career was last year, when he was 47.33%, and he played the entire season injured. Well, now he's supposedly healthy, and he's operating four points below that. So when you look at the new third line that the Flyers have trotted out for the last two games, um, where you have Jordan Wheel centering, Wayne Simmons, and Dale Weiss, I'm going to throw it out there to you, Russ that the Flyers are hiding Wayne Simmons. And they're playing him with Wheel and Weiss because Wheel is at 57.92 and Weiss is at 50.30. And they've been positive play drivers. So they're hiding Wayne Simmons on a line where he, where he, in hopes that the play will, will be better with him out there. S- similarly, Vorchek gets bumped off the top line where he was for a couple games this year. And gets put back to the second line with Nolan Patrick and Oscar Lindblom, who are both positive play drivers. So, it really wasn't. The team recognizes that an issue has been created by two of your veteran players who are not playing good hockey.
0: It's crazy. I mean, it, those numbers are staggering. And I think that's why, you know, if, if nothing else, it's important to measure the difference between, you know, the traditional counting stats and, and the advanced metrics. Right? And so... Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because if if hockey were a bigger topic on on sports talk radio, I would assume that the argument that would be made is exactly kind of the the one that you made with the traditional stats that for is playing a point per game and Simmons leads the team in goals. There's no nuance to that argument. It's just regular basic counting stats. It would be the equivalent of in baseball saying this guy gets a ton of walks or this guy hits a lot of home runs we don't really care about his average. We're focusing solely on his average and not taking in the entire game. Not you know what i mean? So yeah. so it, it it's kind of funny like i don't think that a lot of fans right now are well versed in the ad- advanced metrics or what they mean or using them within context, you know, mixing the eye test versus the stat test, right? But if you kind of i think a lot of people would understand that you know, baseball maybe more than any sport is the ultimate advanced metrics game, right? And so You know, while years ago, things like uh, batting average were the most important stat to a lot of, a lot of people, you know, you started taking into account other kinds of, of advanced batting stats and, you know, different kinds of counting stats. gave you a better idea of is a guy just unlucky is, is the, um, or the balls that he's putting in play hard hit. Do we project that, you know, over the course of a season they would get down and, and the guy's average is, is misleading. I think baseball has come around. I think the general baseball fan has become more educated in those kind of stats. I think hockey's a little bit behind in it. But the fact that these metrics exist, you know, kind of give you a better idea of, of how a team is doing and in the grander scheme of, or in the, you know, the greater context of of a season and, and in, you know, a few game streak here, gives you a better idea of how is the team playing beyond what those traditional counting stats are. So you make an interesting point, and it's probably the the perfect example of why traditional stats alone don't do a a guy or a team justice and advanced stats alone don't do a guy or a team justice you you do a nice job of marrying the two of them together and you really do get a you know a holistic view of of what exactly is plaguing a team or what's working well for them so the idea of them hiding simmons is not entirely surprising hearing that the advanced stats are as low as they are and you made a compelling case for the fact that they're probably hiding him this kind of comes back to you know i think at some point a trade has to go down Regardless of how this trip goes, if if Voracek is somebody that you think you can get legitimate value for on the trade market, I, I think at some point you might have to consider making that trade. And I know that you mentioned in in your piece after the Islanders game that like Voracek is probably the guy first on the list to go. Um, but like he's got he's carrying what is it an eight point two million dollar cap hit this year, and I, I think for the next three years, if you can get some value for him, and I, I'm not saying like low value, I'm not saying like late round draft picks. I think you can probably get back an asset that can help your team now. If you start playing fundamentally more sound hockey, like, maybe it works. But I would ask you, if if Voracek is a guy who goes, or Simmons is a guy they trade at the deadline, because I, I don't see any way that they decide to re-sign him, if you trade these guys, like, are you going to get much value, and is it really going to do enough for your team that, like, it, it's worth continuing to build around Kluger as your captain? Is it just putting a Band-Aid on it, or do you really think that at some point... This team's mental makeup, the way they handle themselves, the, the insecurities, the sensitivities that it seems like these guys have, things that Hextall has alluded to, Hextall has alluded to, do we just start to think that, like, fundamentally, the team needs to blow up this core? Well,
1: you know, it's always the hardest decision is, is to, you know, decide when it's time to move on from your franchise player. So... I don't. I think it's really hard when you say, "Do you want to keep building around Drew?" Well, the one good thing about it is, is that Drew's got some years left. Um, I, I think he's actually played well. Um, he's not. He, he's not played as well as he played last year, but he's not been bad. Um, he's also averaging basically a point per game. He's a point over. He's fourteen points in thirteen games. Um, but he's got good uh, good analytics metrics. Um, yeah, he's actually played well. I, I, people, and I address this, you know, you hear so many people say strip to sea. It, it's not, it has nothing to do with the public perception of, of a, a good captain. He's well-liked in that locker room. He's well-respected. He, he He's fine in where he is. So I don't think that this is something that the Flyers are going to want to do, um, is break it down that much. Uh, I do think that you have guys in Vorchek and Simmons, however, who can get you some return. Voracek will get you more return, even with that cap hit. Because there's even the possibility, I mean, the Flyers are not in danger uh, of being close to the cap. I mean, if they needed to really, to, in order to get, if they wanted to get better return, if they want to, you know, pay a, par, a part of that salary, maybe for, you know, a season or two or something to kind of, you know, bolster what they're getting back in return, they could always do that. I, I don't think that they need to. I think I think that that, that salary is, yeah, it might be slightly high, but not overtly so. Um, and I think that I think that you can get something for Jake. Um, Simmons, you're not going to get as much because he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. Um, but there might be a team who looks and says, we can improve our power play, get a great leader and character guy on our team for the Stanley Cup push. Yeah. Um, Let's go get Wayne Simmons. And he would be an, an a, I think, would be an ideal addition um, to uh, to any team. Um, and the Flyers would get a little something for him. I mean, but I mean, I don't, when you say something's got to give, I, I don't disagree, but I don't necessarily think it's, it's, you know, two weeks from now. I think these two wins have kind of maybe, you know, Held held the dogs at bay a little bit. Know what I'm saying? Or the wolves at bay a little bit. Um, now, if they go out Saturday against San Jose and, and get swamped, and uh, you know play terrible again in Arizona thereafter, then it could change. It could change everything. But if you asked me before the Boston game, the last time we recorded, how I thought the Flyers would do in these um, six games, uh, the four, the five games on the road, and the home game against the Islanders, and I gave you two, three, and one. So far, they're two and two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So, I mean, yeah. they're, either, they're either going to exceed uh, what I suggest with one more win, or if they, you know, maybe they get beat by San Jose. I don't think they're beating the Sharks. I, I don't care they want to get revenge, anything. But I don't think they're good enough to beat the Sharks. So, I don't think they beat the Sharks. And then the Arizona game's the interesting one, because I think that's the one that could go either way, and they're right about where you expect. So, the, the real thing, and one of the other things that I addressed, and this is something I also wanted to talk about with you a little bit, Russ, is I. One of the things I addressed in in, in the uh, re, you know the assessment of the team is the coach, because I know everybody calls for his firing, and uh, you know I, I was one of the first people last year who suggested, hey, a coaching change might not be a bad idea when you lose ten games in a row. It's that's not That's not suggesting that things are good. Um, but I, I don't think that I I don't ever think that Haxtell's an idiot. I know a lot of people do. I don't think he's a, I don't think he's you know mind-numbingly stupid. I think he makes some some in-game decisions that are kind of questionable. I think that for the first three seasons he was a coach, he was a little bit too stubborn with his game plan and didn't address it until it was either too late or much later than he should have addressed it. Um, but I think that we're seeing. Him be a little bit more aggressive with changing things up this year. He doesn't like the way things are going, and it's not just the kids who are being who are being penalized or being punished for it. I think that you're seeing the changes that are being made. He split up his top pair defense. He took Voracek and Simmons off the top power play, demoted them. He also demoted Scott Lawton, which a lot of people were questioning. You know, Scott Lawton's Corsi is worse than Wayne Simmons this year. It's- that that kind of might be a little bit of a surprise to people um, but you know he's also not been afraid to to you know call out players not specifically by name but you know wheel you know, call you know you can't take that penalty or you need to be more competitive uh, misha Vorobiev. or who's uh, now,
0: who was then sent down and I Kabel was brought up
1: right exactly like so like you know it's he's he's had a better balance um, in the way that he's identifying specific players flaws, but at the same time still being effusive of players who are playing well. So for that, I think you have to believe that he's got a better handle on this maybe than we all thought to begin with, and that he's able to find, find, you know, get this team to a point where it's like, okay, we've been backed into the corner, now let's come out swinging. But my concern is, is that they, they always do that. That's where I, That's where I lose the complete faith in the coach. Because how do you how do you continually put yourself behind the eight ball before you're ready to play hockey, and that could be in a specific game, over the course of four or five games, over the course of of a season. How do you continue to put yourself in that position, and then and then and only then decide that it's time to uh, get get it right.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's that's really the concern that a lot of fans have, and and that I think it was, uh, what game was it? It was the Islanders game. Afterwards, you and I are getting ready to go on the elevator. I'm like, well, you know, and, and I think this kind of comes back to something we said off the top of the show, but if if you're looking for change, you needed bad results on this trip. And, and to me, if the idea here is that this team is going to do this reset, they're going to go out and get good results on the West Coast, and it's going to It's going to hold off what might end up being the inevitable or what many people think is going to be the inevitable which is the firing of dave hackstall at what point is that really the best thing like i think this goes two ways hackstall hackstall's job status continuing to just be kind of pushed off like it's clear that within the organization there has finally been thought if there hadn't been before they were getting very close to pulling the plug on the hackstall experiment right if if that's the case if you're that close to firing the guy then is it really that good to continue to just kind of push off this inevitable thing i I guess on the flip side of that is making an in-season coaching change really going to be beneficial to your team and like who could it be that you would bring in that that you would actually want or think would you know implement a system that would be beneficial to your team not just this year but going forward is there a good candidate on the market or are you just going to, like, promote somebody from from within? Is it going to be somebody who's currently on Hextall's staff? Are you going to go from somebody from the Phantoms? And we talked about this on the last episode. Does Hextall decide to go out and get, like, Daryl Sutter to come in here because they have a connection from the Kings? Like, to me, the only thing to to do in that situation is to try to bring in somebody who has some kind of credibility. That would be Sutter. But, like, again, is is that going to make your team better this year? And is it is it a guy who you think long-term has a future here? Because he's not going to come in here to just you know write the ship for a year on like an interim basis right so I, I'm just kind of in this this torn phase where I don't think we're gonna see a fundamentally different team the rest of this season like I think that we've seen enough of an adjustment on this road trip so far to say all right maybe Hackstall has changed this game plan enough he's starting to play to the strengths of what the team might be and get away from you know what I think has been kind of this this strange system of, of taking so many shots from deep and low percentage shots and like maybe at some point you know oh my gosh my kids are going nuts uh they're going absolutely insane i can hear them um like maybe at at some point you just kind of hope that you know if if the coach if you decide to to move on from him you'll actually see a different style i I think it is commendable to an extent that hacksaw has you know seemed to fundamentally change what they're doing in the offensive zone but then I, i wonder like why has it taken so long and if they get some good results like what's it really going to take for him to revert back to this old style that really hasn't found a lot of success over the last year and a half two years these are the the issues that i'm going to struggle with and and you know maybe maybe they stick to this maybe the system continues to work maybe they're able to write some of the, these issues with the pk but i don't know if if we're ever going to get to a point where the ceiling of this team is is much higher than it is right now yeah that, I, to, that to me is the problem yeah i mean you got at some
1: point you got to sit there and say being mediocre is not good enough. Being a fringe playoff team who gets bounced in the first round is not good enough. I mean that's really just how you have to slice it. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I just think that uh, that it's a, it's a, you know, you're six and seven at this point in in the season. Okay, um, but boy, it's it's frustrating, and I understand why. That said, Russ, I don't want to sit here and, and completely complain about um, them. They do have some positives that have been starting to shine lately. Um, and we'll, we'll wrap it up with, with talking about some of these positives. Um, you look at a couple of guys on offense who are finally getting the opportunity that they deserve. Um, Travis Konechny, Nolan Patrick, Jordan Wheel, these guys are playing good hockey right now. Um, Konechny is really jump-started that top line. It made uh, Couturier has started to look healthier. Um, and so now you're starting to see a, a good top line in Giroud, Couturier, Konechny. Uh, but Konechny also playing top power play minutes now. Um, he's really been much better over the last handful of games. He, he did have a, a struggling start to the season, but he's been a lot better um so you gotta like that i think nolan patrick has been really good this year in every game that he's played pretty much uh he did have he did miss a couple there with the uh, upper body injury <coughs> concussion <coughs> um but um uh he's been he's been excellent and talk about a guy who goes to the net he gets to the front of the net um and jordan wheel if he's as long as he stops taking penalties he is driving the play. He is creating offense. I'd like to see him score a little bit more, but he gets so many chances and creates chances for his line. So you're seeing some good work out of those guys. Um, and and then on defense, and I wanted to address this since uh, we got a Twitter question about it. Um, actually, we got uh, two Twitter, uh, Twitter questions about it. Um, one from uh, Eric Heflick and one from Jerry Temple, both asking about Travis Sandheim. Um, and uh, look, Eric wanted to know why do you think we're consistently seeing Sandheim sixth among defensemen in ice time by a decent margin when he's generally played well? And Jerry says, at what point do you guys think they start to let the leash out for Sandheim and use him regularly in the top four? And I, I, I'm i still one. Per, I'm, I think he's had a good season. I think Travis Sandheim's been much better than he was last year, but I still think that he's occasionally prone. To getting caught flat-footed or overcommitting to his, his side of the ice, uh, or Committing not coming some off the wall within
0: his own zone.
1: Yeah, or not coming off the wall well in his own end. Um, I think what the Flyers are doing. The reason that he's putting up good metrics, good analytic metrics, good advanced stat metrics, however you want to phrase it, is because they are protecting him, and he and Gudis are not playing against a lot of uh, the top lines.
0: That's yeah. a credit to the coach too. Like yeah, whether, or not, whether is, or not you like hackstall like it that, there really is a, a legitimate, you know, thing that he's protecting Sandheim you know, from not playing against those, you know, the top two lines and there we go, kids. Um, but like, but like really like it is a good job by this coach to make sure that he's kind of building up Sandheim's confidence. We've talked, you know, we talked last year about the fact and I guess probably the last two years, not on this podcast, but just in general, that Hackstall tends to, you know, send younger players up to the press box to watch doesn't really let them work out the kinks like some other coaches might but the fact that he's putting sanheim in position to succeed which is what he's doing by not letting him play against top lines you're building the kid's confidence up and you're letting him get experience at this level at this speed and and if there's one place that i think Hackstall's done a good job this year it's with that now uh not to derail where else you were going with this but just really quick like Vorobyev got sent down And Varobiev was a guy that I think a lot of people thought was was going to sit for maybe like a game, maybe two at most, to make a point and then get inserted back in the lineup. And it just never happened. So like maybe some people would say that's malpractice, but I don't think in the case of Varobiev, he had done enough to solidify his position on this team to go through a bit of a rough stretch. Now, granted, the, the guy played out of his mind in training camp. He jumped over Jordan Wheel. He jumped over other guys on this team, and he should be commended for the effort that he put out. But like... He simply wasn't getting it done. And so, like, I understand conceptually why Hackstall took him out of the lineup. And then, like, maybe, maybe to the GM's credit, sending him down instead of having him sit in the box for six or seven games in a row, like, let him get his legs back underneath him, let him get some actual game action in the AHL. And then if an injury happens or if somebody struggles, if an Abe Kubel struggles... Maybe think about bringing Vorobyev back up, and you know, shifting Wheeler or uh, Lawton back out to the wing, and and you fit Vorobyev back in as a center. Like, I I don't know. I feel like in some ways they've handled a lot of these younger guys better this year than they have in the past. So if I'm going to give the coach credit, it's probably in the way that he's handled some of these guys.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I agree 100. percent And the thing with Vorobyev is, you know, he was he's had a uh, a bit of a history of being a non-competitive player at times. And that's not to say every all the time, but at times. Um, uh, and I think that that and that even goes back to his you know days in the AHL, whatever. Um, I think that that's kind of been the knock on him. Uh, he seemed to have shed that in training camp. And then it came roaring back when once you saw that he was overmatched uh, in the NHL. Um, we did have one other question, final question. This is an easy one, I think, to answer. Um, I'll throw it to you. Right, this comes from uh, Darren Scott on Twitter. In your opinion, is the poor team defense that this team has shown due to a bad defensive unit or the forwards not helping enough in the defensive zone?
0: I think it's the latter. I, I, yeah. Let, let, let me just put it like this. I think it's a little bit of both, but I, I think this is lazy defensive play by the forwards. And and to me, I'm a soccer guy, right? So I make a lot of comparisons uh, between hockey and, and soccer. And I think a lot of... The similarities kind of hold true. Your defenseman can only do so much. Your goalie can only do so much. There are five guys on the ice for the other team that are out that are willing and able to get into the offensive zone and to score. And if you only have your two defensemen back and your goalie back to help defend the net, you are doing your team a disservice. And so there have been I don't know how many times that we've been down watching games together where all I keep saying is far post, far post, far post. It's the same thing that happens in soccer on an odd man rush, on a counter attack, on a set piece like a corner kick. If you don't defend your back post, if you have nobody in the general vicinity, there is not a whole lot your goalie can do. And it doesn't matter how good or how skilled your your defenders or your defensemen are you are putting your team at a massive disadvantage out of sheer laziness. And that is the thing that to me is unacceptable is we've had so many forwards on this team that are not getting back, are not tracking, are not finding a man, are not bodying a man, are not defending. If we're gonna go with like a zonal defensive coverage, they are not getting themselves in position to bail their goalie out. And it doesn't matter if it's Brian Elliott, Michael Neuver, if it ends up being Alex Lyon, if it's Cal Pickard, if it someday is is Carter Hart, if Stoli, the goalie, comes up, it doesn't matter who the goalie is. They are not Superman, and they are not twice the size of the net. They are not going to be able to bail out lazy play by the forwards. And that, to me, is the number one issue defensively with the team. Yeah,
1: you're not wrong. Um, it's more about—and uh, and really, it's, it's, it's not just—you're not wrong when you say that they don't come back and help. They don't. Um, but it's also they force their own defensemen to make mistakes— uh, on breakouts, because what ends up happening is, is the forwards get too far um, because they want, to, they want to start a rush the other way, and they they then force their defenseman to make more difficult passes. Um, and a lot of times the, the most efficient way to play hockey is the most simple way to play hockey. The simple pass, the simple play, the easy play is the way to go. So, that, you know, you get closer to your defenseman so that he has an easy pass to give you. Who doesn't have to try and stretch it out into the neutral zone? and turn the puck over, and then now all of a sudden you got the other team coming back at you 3-on-2 with speed, and your defensemen are down low, so they, they really can't count and challenge. I mean, that's part of the problem. So the forwards, and a lot a lot of times, you know, there are a lot of complaints about this Flyers' defense, and sometimes it's rightfully so, but a lot of times it's not the defensemen themselves, it's the team defense, which incorporates the forwards as
0: well. And I think that comes back to what Scott Lawton said after I think it was the New York game, where he, he said, we're cheating. It's 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 this team's propensity for cheating on angles, for cheating, waiting at the blue line to try to start that counterattack, kind of to your point, and just not playing fundamentally sound. It's it's like everybody's out on the ice, especially, and I I would say this is more the forwards, but is setting themselves up for a counterattack to try to get a breakaway and to try to get the glory of scoring a goal, and and if that is going to be the mentality of the scene the guys need to be replaced right they need to be sat they need to be pulled they need to be demoted onto lower lines and we've seen it happening throughout games so while some people in this city who have a you know an avenue to put out an opinion about this team will you know scream and, and rant and rave that this coach is a moron they don't care if he's you know going wakeboarding they don't care about him off the ice like whatever If you are so blinded by your hatred of a coach that you can't recognize when he does something well, then I think you're doing the fans a disservice. So there are things that Haxtell has done well. There are things that he seems to be doing better as a coach, as an in-game manager. Is he a great coach? I don't know. I wouldn't say that he's like a top 10 coach in the league. I think that's pretty fair. Some people might not put him in the top 20. Um, I, I don't have a feeling about it really either way. But I, I think that this urgency and and the kind of duress and distress that the, the team was feeling, I think it has trickled down from the top. If it was Dave Scott in the, in the GM box, trickling down to Ron Hextall, to special advisors like Paul Holmgren or Bobby Clark, uh, it, obviously down to this coaching staff. They have made changes, and to me, they're playing a, a game that in theory, if they were to keep this game plan and they were able to adjust to what will eventually be adjustments made by opposing teams, if they're able to adjust on the fly like they have, they're able to incorporate young players into positions to be successful, and they're holding vets accountable, not just the young players, then like maybe this team does end up kind of hitting its stride. And maybe they do end up becoming like a sixth seed in the the east and that's not that bad i don't think it's great like, i don't think anybody was coming into the season hoping for you know a, a bottom bottom two bottom three playoff team in the conference but like realistically with the cap space they have this year which is about i think roughly eight million dollars they have next year it goes up depending on you know some offer sheets going out to guys They have about 30 plus million dollars according to uh to cap geek available for next year this to me is like, you're a year away. And I know that Flyers fans are sick of being told they're a year away or two years away from being a year away. But like, realistically, you've got the cap space available to you next year, you're going to have guys like Wayne Simmons off the team uh, that are taking up some of that space. If you eventually decide to make a Jake Voracek trade and try to bring in a guy who's, you know, maybe at half the salary, you're going to have cap space, you're going to be able to get better, this team will continue to grow. If if the coach does a good job the rest of this season or however long he has to you know make the best possible use of these young players and vets then I don't know maybe he's not the worst guy to have here I can't believe I'm saying it what is happening to me I'm I'm getting soft on Dave Hackstall as we go isn't this this is yeah. not this is not what people tuned in for
1: I know it's not a, not at all not at all so Russ we have to um, I know we're going to be wrapping this up but we got to tell everybody about our our new venture. Uh, that we are doing um, at down at the Wells Fargo Center, um, and we're looking for kind of looking for a name for this. Still, we're kind of debating what to call it. Um, the Press Row Show, uh, <laughs> the, the show from Press Row. Um, uh, anyway, uh, I think that it's uh, it, it's it's a fun thing that we're doing where we are going to uh, be streaming live from the press box uh, pregame and during intermissions. Um, on both Facebook, uh, Facebook Live, and on uh, Periscope through Twitter. Um, And you'll be able to interact with us. We'll answer your questions and uh, read your comments and talk about a bunch of things uh, involving the Flyers, really in real time. Uh, Pre-game, usually about 30 minutes before the game starts. um, And then uh, intermission within a couple minutes of uh, the, the final horn. Uh, at the end of the period so i do have to say though
0: that the only negative about the intermission show has been it has thrown off my schedule a little bit about getting up getting my popcorn my m&ms and my coffee or brisk ice tea but i will i will do it because it's what's best for the fans of philadelphia nice Nice. i will i will hold off on my high calorie high fat high salt intake um for the, for the greater good. I have to say, we, we did get some really good feedback on it, and I think we were very appreciative of the fact that people were tuning in. I would like to hear from people um, because we often post these shows on Facebook and on Twitter and, of course, on the site. Like, I would actually like to know from people what they prefer, which which medium they would prefer to, to watch and take this in on between Facebook and Twitter. We do intend on doing them both. Um, the way that we did the first couple uh, was Facebook – the facebook live video was through the crossing broad facebook account that's my three-year-old playing piano now um the the facebook account uh for crossing broad and then the twitter uh periscope feed that we were using was anthony's twitter account which is at aunt San philly so I, you know I'm, I'm hoping that people continue to tune in we saw bigger numbers um as the game went on and that was even after the team fell further and further behind so I don't know. I'm hoping that people are going to continue to tune in, obviously tune into this show. Our listener numbers have been growing uh, every episode, which is awesome. That means people are spreading the word about the show. And hopefully, you know, as we continue to try to put out what is the best coverage of this team uh, in a pregame and intermission style show, you know, get involved, tell your friends, tell family, tell whomever to, uh, you know, check us out on, on Facebook live and on, on Periscope on Twitter. And, um, I, I don't know. I'm I'm grateful that people were tuning in for it, and then uh, you know like reposting the show. So I thought that was pretty cool.
1: I think you should use your uh, your three year old's uh, musical abilities as the lead in for our show this, this
0: week. That's really not a bad idea. I, I actually. Well, I don't I don't know how I feel about. it. He was just over here. I had the mic muted, and he was talking about the uh, Voracek Chia Pet. He was very excited about that. So uh, anyway, he's he's over trying to play piano, which is awesome. So.
1: That's great. That's great,
0: Luca. Do you want to play the uh, the folks out with some with some music? What do you think? Can you play us a tune? Right, he's getting set. He's getting set with the book. So uh, oh, okay. we'll do we'll do the closing spiel here, and he can uh, maybe play us a, a few notes while we're on our way out. So, uh, as always, you know. A, oh, yes. Yes. Dissonance. Yes, <laughs> I love I love the musical dissonance that's happening in the back. Go check out the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, including Crossed Up, a Philly's podcast with Anthony and Bob. Uh, who you can find on Twitter at BW Crossing Broad. I know that you guys are planning on recording a show. We're uh, we're recording this Friday night, so, you know, MLB Free Agency has started, so um, you know, that's a thing. So you'll want to check out uh, Crossed Up. Go check out Crossing Broad FC with me and Phil Kaidel. He's on Twitter at Phil Keidel. That's K-E-I-D-E-L. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel. It's always soccer in Philadelphia with Kevin Kincaid and Dave Zeitlin. Of course, the Union, Anthony's favorite team in the city. They lost in their uh, one and only playoff match this year. Their third playoff appearance in franchise history. They lost to NYCFC at a, mi- at a micro-sized uh, Yankee Stadium field, which was awful uh, as per usual and, uh, crossing broadcasts. We didn't put out an episode this week, which one of those was Kyle's fault. One was my fault, but I guarantee you the next episode that we do, there are going to be some stories. Kyle spent the night last night, uh, with the entourage and, and the man himself with Alan Iverson. And I know that he has some stories that he's going to want to tell the fine folks of the Delaware Valley. So go check out those shows as well. Um, anything else you want to put out there, Anthony, before we go?
1: No, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to doing uh, Crossed Up with Bob on on uh, Sunday night for Monday morning because uh, we got a lot to do as we get ready for free agency uh, in Major League Baseball. So Phillies are going to be a big offseason. So uh, we do have a new episode coming out on Monday morning. Just make sure everybody checks that one out as well.
0: All right. Well, for Anthony, who you can find on Twitter at AntSanPhilly, I'm Russ at JoyOnBroad. Don't forget, check and us for, out next week. Nick- and for Luca playing oh, yeah. music in the background and and for, and for Luca playing music on the background he's he's a, he's so excited he's got sunglasses on now this is uh he's he's gone through every stage of being a Flyers fan he's now you know he's hammered the dissonance now we've got a little bit of some musicality going on which is good this is kind of like the Flyers they were in absolute dissonance hockey dissonance on the on the ice at home and now they've managed to work it out up oh, he's grabbed an accordion now So, uh, all right, for Anthony, for Luca, I'm Russ, and uh, we'll catch you again next week. Don't forget to check out the pregame and intermission shows live from Press Row. Uh, We will talk to you again next week.